you remain standing with me and let's read our scripture for today together. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, we've come today to uh, the third message in this little mini-series I've titled Devoted based on Acts 2, 42 to 47, and uh, we'll be talking about that in just a moment. I want to let you know where we're going uh, beginning next week. We'll start our, our uh, Christmas series next Sunday. I hope that you'll invite some folks to join you. Christmas is one of those Sundays of the year, one of those times of the year when people are more willing to go to, to church than others. And uh, so maybe they, maybe they would come for a whole Christmas series. Who knows? But I uh, want to just encourage you to uh, be here. Uh, our, our series is going to be titled God Rest Ye Merry, and uh, you'll, you'll hear about that and why we've chosen that title uh, next Sunday. But I'm excited about it, and uh, I'm always excited about Christmas. I think you are too. And it's, it's, it's going to be a great time together. Now, I want, I want you to know that I understand that you've eaten lots of turkey this week, that you've been nibbling on leftovers ever since, and uh, you've had turkey sandwiches and turkey dressing with gravy that's just still in the refrigerator and you can't resist it. And, and all that tryptophan has made you tired. And so if you fall asleep during this session, uh, I want you to know that I'm going to give you grace for that. Um, because I just realized it's the turkey, not this turkey, that puts you to sleep. But by way of a, a brief review, uh, for those of you who may just be turning in, uh, tuning in, I, I want to draw your attention uh, back one more time to that word devoted in verse 42. Uh, we need to understand it, first because of what it fundamentally means, second, because it dominates and defines this entire passage and is, is the key to all that follows uh, in the book of Acts. It describes the attitude and the activity of what I've been calling the First Christian Church of Jerusalem, that group of now about 3,120 who made up the church following the day of Pentecost. We read in verse 42, they devoted themselves, pros cartereo. We, we've observed that, that that verb that, that's translated devoted suggests a steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. Uh, it means to be given over to something, to persist, to, to be constant and steadfast. We would say today to be all in. Uh, to hang in there in spite of opposition or difficulty from without, and in spite of that ever-present lethargy and resistance from within. Luke wants us to know that these disciples were devoted, that they were not dabblers. Additionally, we've observed twice now that viewing the 21st century church from the vantage of this 1st century church, one really has to admit that much of what characterizes the activity of so many who claim the name of Christ today 
cannot at all be described as devotion, but in truth is better described as dabbling. Explains a great deal about what's going on in American Christianity today and uh, the weakness of our churches, the weakness of our witness in the world. Well, Luke tells us that they devoted themselves, first of all, to the apostles' teaching. We saw that in our first message in this little mini-series, the apostles' teaching, as uh, they interpreted and explained what the life and the work of Jesus Christ meant in light of the Old Testament prophets and how we should then live. Uh, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. We saw that word koinonia, which uh, which means to have all things in common, to be in partnership together. Uh, then to the breaking of bread, which uh, we uh, interpreted in this case as the Lord's Supper, but also usually contextualized within a common meal uh, uh, that they enjoyed with great regularity. And then finally today to the prayers. They were a learning church. They were a communal church. They were a worshiping church. And today we're going to see that they were a praying church. And the question I've been asking you to consider in this mini-series, devoted, and that I'm now asking you again this morning is, are you devoted or are you a dabbler in your Christian life? Are you devoted or are you a dabbler? Could could you be described as a steadfast and single-minded, uh, faithful in your walk with Christ? Are you all in? Today I'm asking you this question with regard to your devotion to prayer personally and regarding our devotion to prayer as a church corporately. A 19th century Author and minister S.D. Gordon once wrote in his little book, Quiet Talks on Prayer, the greatest thing anyone can do for God and man is pray. It's not the only thing, but it is the chief thing. The great people of the earth today are the people who pray. I do not mean those who talk about prayer, nor those who can explain about prayer, but I mean those people who take time and pray. Samuel Chadwick, another 19th century minister, Wesleyan, wrote this, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless study, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a 20th century Welsh pastor, wrote, Prayer is the best test of an individual, and it is also the best test of a church. A church can be flourishing. She can be successful in terms of organizations. She can be tremendously active and appear to be prosperous. But if you want to know whether she is a real church or not, examine the amount of prayer that takes place. Prayer is the inevitable conclusion of true doctrine. The first Christians started with the apostles' teaching, and that led to prayer. In his volume on the Acts of the Apostles, Lloyd-Jones said that he considered the order in which Luke listed these four priorities to which the first Christian church of Jerusalem devoted themselves, not to have been an accident, but rather having been divinely inspired. 
and that he believed it should never be listed in any other order. And here's his rationale. Notice what comes first, the apostles' teaching. That decides everything else. The nature of the fellowship is determined by doctrine. You must start with the teaching. The teaching controls the fellowship. The fellowship is of those who have kindred minds, who believe the same things. And when we come to the breaking of the bread, we know exactly what we are doing because of the teaching. You do not understand the Lord's Supper unless you start with the apostolic teaching. And it is exactly the same in this matter of prayers. In other words, if we're going to understand the role that prayer played in the life of the first century church, and we would say the the role that it ought to play here in the 21st century church, then we're going to have to approach it biblically. Uh, We're going to have to understand what the apostles themselves thought, taught, and practiced with regard to prayer. Luke tells us they devoted themselves to the prayers. They devoted themselves to the prayers. They were a praying church. Notice again with me the definite article that precedes that word prayers. And you say, come on, Jim, this isn't an English class. It's important. They didn't simply devote themselves to the idea of prayer, but to the practice of prayer. Nor was their devotion merely to any idea or concept of prayer at all. Rather, they devoted themselves to the prayers. It's probably important that we pause and ask the question, what did Luke mean? Why did he put the definite article in front of the word prayers? It's puzzling that a a number of translations have chosen to set aside a literal translation of verse 42 in relationship to this fourth priority of prayer. For example, the New American Standard Bible, the New International Version, and the New English Translation simply say, and to prayer, and to prayer. The English Standard Version, in contrast, reflects the Greek text, including both the definite article the and the plural form of prayer or prayers. The only place we might look for a clue in the immediate passage we're considering, that is verses 42 to 47, as to what Luke intended to convey might be verse 47, where he says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And prayer certainly includes the dynamic of praise and worship, doesn't it? But chapter 3 and verse 1 provide, I think, a more reliable clue. There, we read, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. In first century Judaism, there were three daily prescribed hours of prayer. Morning prayer at 9, afternoon prayer at 3 p.m., evening prayer at sundown. Chapter 2, verse 46 tells us the new believers were together daily in the temple courts. Comparing that with chapter 3, verse 1, it begins to make sense that in those very early days, those Jewish Christ followers in Jerusalem continued to observe the prescribed times of prayer at the temple. The prayers they prayed would have been known, would have been understood, would have been valued by the entire community of Jews, possibly for millennia. 
That's not to say that that more personal, spontaneous, informal prayers were excluded. It's instead to remind ourselves that these new believers were Jews. And of this one thing, we can be completely confident that the Holy Spirit was leading them to see those old prayers with new eyes. To understand them in light of Jesus being the promised Messiah and to perceive them with minds that were being radically transformed by the Spirit of God so that those formal prayers were suddenly instilled with new meaning and new vitality. Sometimes we evangelicals uh, want to push formality and discipline away. And yet, how valuable might it be in our lives if three times a day we were in prayer intentionally, that we put it on our calendars, that we programmed our cell phones to remind us it's time to pray. And we set aside time, set aside time every day to actually pray a defined period of time. Well, let's ask this question. What is prayer? What is prayer? An answer to that question that was very helpful to me when I was young said that prayer is simply conversing with God. It includes both speaking and listening. And that's a great place to start. In fact, that's, that's, a, that's a great place to, to remain. That prayer is conversing with God. It's not just blabbing and walking away. It's not just kind of laying it out all to God and then, and then walking away and saying, I prayed. It's also taking time to hear from God by His Spirit through His Word, which is the Bible. The deeper you go in your understanding of God's Word, His will, His ways, as they're revealed in Scripture, the deeper you're allowing your prayer life to become. There's a, there's a uh, symbiotic relationship between your knowledge of the Word, your understanding of the will and the ways of God, and the effectiveness and the depth of your prayer. God never acts in contradiction to his word. He will never speak to you in contradiction to his word. Everything he will ever say to you, he has already said in his word. He may apply that individually to your life, but it will have the word of God, the spirit of God behind it. South African pastor Andrew Murray echoed that. He said, prayer is not monologue, but dialogue. God's voice is is Uh, its most essential part. Listening to God's voice is the secret of the assurance that he will listen to mine. I love that. Paul gives us a picture of what prayer is in his letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we bring him all of our needs. We ask for his provision. That's what's what's in that word supplication. We're asking him for his provision for our needs. We thank him in advance. 
And he provides us with his peace in exchange for our anxiety. Sounds like a pretty good deal to me. You got anxiety in any part of your life? Anxiety about your work, about your income, about your future, about your kids, your grandkids, the world news. Got anxiety? God's provision for our anxiety is prayer. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. But there's more. Go with me to Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You remember that the Israelites had a tabernacle, a portable tabernacle in those years in the wilderness and then for many years after they arrived in the promised land. And then later, a temple. The temple was divided into different areas. There was a a large outer courtyard where anyone could enter that was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was accordingly known uh, in those terms. There was a a courtyard where Jewish women were allowed to enter, the Court of Women. Further in, there was a special courtyard for Jewish men, uh, the Court of Israel, and then one where only the priests were allowed to go. And there they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Uh, We can give thanks today that we can all worship together in one place. Inside the building was the holy place, where again only priests were allowed to enter, and there they would burn incense before the Lord. You remember the story of Zechariah, who became the father of John the Baptist when the angel Gabriel met with him in the temple. He was there in this holy place burning incense. Finally, there was a veil or a, a curtain that that hung from the ceiling to the floor at the back of the tabernacle or at the back of the temple um, that that separated the holy place from what was known alternately as the most holy place or the holy of holies or the holiest of all. And into that holiest place, only one man could go and then only once a year. That man was the high priest of Israel. He he alone entered in to make atonement for the sins of the people. That's what's celebrated today on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the high priest would go behind the veil and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, And there they believed the holy God of Israel himself dwelt. When Jesus died on the cross, among the supernatural events that took place during those hours was that the veil in the temple in Jerusalem was ripped in two from top to bottom. Why? Because our high priest, Jesus, had offered once for all 
the full and final sacrifice for all sin. The veil represented the physical body of Jesus. Because God accepted the sacrifice of his son as completely sufficient to cover forever all of the sins of all of those who had come to him by faith for salvation. The veil was torn and removed, and the way was now open for them to enjoy direct access to God the Father. So we read there in verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And actually in the Greek, or in, actually in the Greek version of Hebrews, it's the holiest place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Prayer is the great privilege that God has given us because he accepted the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And so we are able to come boldly into his presence by that new and living way. Earlier, before his suffering and crucifixion, Jesus had said to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is God's only provision for the predicament of our sin. And I wonder if you understand how remarkable, how radical, how revolutionary this is. I wonder if I understand it. All who by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in his Son, Jesus Christ alone, having received forgiveness and cleansing from sin through the blood that he shed for us on the cross, may enter confidently into the very presence of the holy, eternal God. The right and the privilege to approach the eternal holy God is an indescribable and wholly undeserved gift from God, won for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what did they pray for, those early believers, those early Christians? What did they pray for? After Jesus had risen from the dead, just before he ascended into heaven, you recall that he had instructed his disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to remain in the city until they were clothed with power from on high, which took place then on the day of Pentecost. And when they returned to the city, Luke tells us in Acts 1.14 that with one accord, it's not a Honda sedan, that's, that's being of one heart and mind, With one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Well, what were they praying for during that time? Well, it's likely that they were praying that the Holy Spirit would come, that they would be ready to receive the Holy Spirit. Perhaps they were were praying that they would remain faithful and obedient to Jesus. Perhaps they were praying that, that the Holy Spirit would come as he had promised and that they would receive that power from on high to be his representatives in the world. In chapter 1, they prayed for God's guidance to the man. You recall we we talked about this earlier, who would replace Judas Iscariot among the 12 apostles. God God chose Matthias. In chapter 4, as we're going to see in January, 
Um, they prayed for boldness to speak the word of God in the face of opposition from the Jewish ruling council and for the continued power of God to perform miracles. Uh, we could assume here in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, that as we read the great signs and wonders were being done at the hands of the apostles, that they were praying uh, for that, that that would continue on. Going on in Acts, we see the church praying for power to perform miracles, to meet human needs. We see the church praying for the apostles when they landed in prison time after time. Now, we're going to read about the church praying for missionaries like Paul and Barnabas as they're commissioned and sent to take the gospel to the world. We're going to read of them praying for endurance in the face of intense persecution. All of that and so much more they brought to God in prayer. The first century church was a praying, praising church. And you can just imagine why. Because they were in the thick of the mission that God had saved them to to perform. And they were facing opposition and and uh, they were seeing miracles performed. And they understood their utter dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God to do and to be all that God wanted them to be in that context. Well, the next question then is uh, follows, why should we pray? Why should we pray? And as I think about that question, I realize that a lot rests on the reason why one might ask that question in the first place. So if someone isn't a believer who's asking the question for the sake of information, it's, it's, it's probably an entirely legitimate question. But if one who claims to be a Christian is asking because they simply fail to see any reason why they should pray, it would be clear that something has gone wrong desperately wrong with their spiritual growth and their spiritual life. It may be an indicator that they're not a Christian at all. But let me suggest three what I think are biblical reasons why we should pray. Why we should pray. We should pray, first of all, because we are privileged to pray. Because we're privileged to pray. We who have trusted in Christ are invited to enter into the very presence of God and come before the very throne of grace. Again, the writer of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And again, don't miss how radical this is. Our high priest, Jesus, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he lived in a human body. He's experienced every temptation we've experienced. You say, well, I've experienced some pretty exotic ones. The Bible says that Jesus experienced every temptation that we've experienced. So when we come before the throne of God, he's able to sympathize with our weakness. And it's a throne not of judgment, not of condemnation, not of fear, but a throne of grace where where we receive mercy and we receive grace 
for every need. When you come to God in prayer, understand that he sympathizes with your weakness. You're not coming to the school principal. You're coming to a heavenly father who loves you and has opened the way for you to come into his presence. A second reason we should pray, I think, is that repeatedly in Scripture, we're simply commanded to pray. It's supposed to be a part of this life that we've been saved to live. For example, Paul wrote to the Roman believers, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. The thought just occurred to me just just now. (laughs) Notice how tribulation is bracketed. Is bracketed first with hope and then with prayer. Got any tribulation going on in your life? Rejoice in hope. Be constant in prayer as you walk through that. I heard a, a black preacher one time said, when, when God sends you tribulation, he expects you to tribulate. Tribulate, yes, but in hope and in prayer. To the Colossians, Paul wrote, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And to the Ephesians, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And you remember the context of that in Ephesians chapter 6. He's talking in that context about spiritual warfare. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers the spiritual forces of darkness. But the most primary reason, third, that we should pray is that we who have trusted in Christ have been adopted as the children of God and because we are His children, He has put His Spirit within us. What's the connection between being adopted and God putting his spirit within us. In ancient times, when a man adopted a son, he would put a ring on his finger as a symbol of his adoption, a symbol of his sonship, if you will. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is the deposit on our inheritance. To be a son is to be an heir. And so the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit on our inheritance. I've said to you on many, many occasions now that the mark of the Christian before the watching world is our tangible active love for one another. But the mark of the Christian from the heavenlies, as as the spiritual inhabitants of the heavenlies look down on us. Maybe down isn't the right word because they're all around us, right? As As they watch us from the heavenlies, the mark of the Christian is the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. So he's put his spirit within us because we are his children as the signet ring, as the the deposit on our inheritance, as the mark of our sonship. And, and, And he causes us by his spirit to long to be in relationship 
with him, to long to linger in his presence, to talk with him, to hear him speaking to us. Prayer is the the essence of what it means to have a relationship with God. And one of the highest privileges of the Christian life. Because we are his children, we, we long to be in relationship with our Heavenly Father. Paul wrote to the Romans, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Thomas Merton wrote that prayer means yearning for the simple presence of God and for a personal understanding of his word, for knowledge of his will, and for capacity to hear and to obey him. Final question, how should we pray? How should we pray? Remember that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. They they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gave them this pattern for prayer that we now know as the Lord's Prayer. And he said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And you think about that. First of all, he invites us, even instructs us to address his Father as our Father the eternal Holy Son of God, the eternal Holy Son of the Heavenly Father, invites us, the children of God by adoption, to call His Father our Father. And it's essential that we realize who it is that we're talking to when we pray, that our intent and purpose is that His name will be hallowed, that it will be reverenced, that it will be made great. As we come to prayer, we must come with that notion in mind, that at the end of our prayer, his name will be hallowed. Then he said that we should anticipate and long for the coming of his kingdom. Whenever and wherever his kingdom breaks through, where his rule is established, his will is also obeyed. And so we pray, we long for his kingdom to come fully and finally on earth, and we pray and long to live lives of consistent obedience to King Jesus. We're to pray in humble dependence for his provision for each day to seek his forgiveness for our sins, for enablement to reflect his grace, his mercy toward us in our relationships with those who sin against us. And he wants us to pray for the wisdom and discernment not to subject ourselves unnecessarily to temptation, not to blame him when we do, and for his deliverance from the malign influence of evil. There's a pattern there that ought to be observed and respected and followed. As we close, I'd like to ask you, what's your answer? Here, as we come to the close of this message, as we come to the close of this three-part series, are you a dabbler when it comes to prayer? Or are you devoted? Would you like to grow in your prayer life? Am I a dabbler when it comes to prayer? You know, I wish that I could say, 
standing here before you in the sight of God that I'm completely devoted to prayer. I wish I could say that. But if, if I'm honest, I have to confess that prayer has always been an area of struggle for me. You say, well, you're a man of many words, Jim. Prayer ought to come quite easily to you. Uh, it doesn't. It's much easier to do many other things than pray. And it nearly always seems more expedient to do those things before praying. I was reflecting on this yesterday as I was finishing up this message and, and thinking that, you know, it, when you're trained, when you're, when you're in school, when you're training to, to be a pastor, they train you to do just about everything but pray. But prayer is the most essential thing, isn't it? Years ago, I encountered and was deeply convicted by this quote from S.D. Gordon that reads, You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Isn't that good? You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. I think that prayer, because Satan opposes it, resists it, interferes with it, will always be a struggle for all of us at very, to varying degrees. But prayer always needs to come first in our lives, in our relationships, in our work, and in our ministries. The reformer Martin Luther once put it this way. He said, I have so much to do today that I shall have to spend the first three hours in prayer. Isn't that good? What a different perspective, right? I have so much to do today that I shall have to spend the first three hours in prayer. Again, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones rings true. He says, prayer is a thorough test of our profession of Christianity. One of the dangers always besetting us is to be content with an intellectual belief. There are many people with an intellectual belief in Christianity who are not Christians. How do you tell whether or not men and women are true Christians? There's no better test than this to look at the place of prayer in their lives. Someone may say, I believe this, that, and the other. How do you know whether that person is genuine? This is the test. Does it all come into practice in prayer? Does it all come into practice in prayer? See, there's a, a great deal of prayer that goes on in the life of our church. I, I see prayer requests being shared on Facebook nearly every day, and, and many of you responding uh, to say that you're praying for those people and for those requests. Uh, prayer happens in our pastoral staff, among the elders, happens between friends here at LifePoint, it happens in our life groups, in our various ministry teams. I think anyone who would suggest that LifePoint is not a praying church would be quite mistaken. And yet, and yet, I, I think that there's a great deal of room for growth in this area for us as a church. And I would love to see a much greater focus on church-wide prayer. I'd love to see a much, uh, I'd like to love to see us engage in intentional cooperative seasons of prayer uh, for leadership, for various ministries, for our mission in this community. 
or a spiritual harvest of men and women, youth and children coming to personal faith in Christ, being baptized, growing up to spiritual maturity. As I'm watching the news these days, I've come to this pretty solid conviction that the coming of Jesus for the church, the rapture of the church, is just around the corner. He's at the door. There is so much to do that we must spend a great deal of time in prayer. You must pray first. We must pray always. We must pray continually. So I'd like to ask you if you would join me in giving thought and attention to steps you might take to to go deeper in your own life of prayer, that you might join me in considering how we as a church might intensify our focus as a church on prayer in the coming year. And I'd I'd really be grateful if you would think about that with me, you pray about that with me, and uh, I would love to receive your thoughts uh, on that. Would you pray with me, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the ways that it speaks right down into the deep places of our lives. And uh, Father, we, we desire a deeper relationship with you. We're beset by temptation and sin in this world. And we look forward to that day when we will be delivered forever from sin, from the very presence of sin. And we would say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, as we spend a few minutes now at your table, would you remind us of the greatness of our salvation and of that which you sacrificed that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. And we pray it in your name. Amen.